Now they're making Ghostbusters with only women. What's going on? And sit down. We will respond with that timeless creed that sums up the spirit of a people. Yes, we can. We choose to go to the moon in this decade and do the other thing, not because they are easy, but because they are hard. Freedom and the dignity of the individual have been more available and assured here than in any other place on Earth. I know the human being and fish can coexist peacefully. Read my lips. And then we're going to Washington, D.C. to take back the White House. Ah! I love the poorly educated. We're the smartest people. We're the most loyal people. I don't know what we're going to talk about for an hour. <laughs> it's very boring debates. Super boring. Everybody thought they were so boring. <laughs> when the president has to go on Twitter and just spell out boring, from Japan. From Japan. Right, like three in the morning. Wow. It's a great world we live in. <laughs> Welcome back, guys. It's Barstool Politics. I am your host, Nick McGuire, joined as always by Dr. Bill Monk from North Central College and Dr. Phil Barker from Keene State College. Hi, guys. Hey, Nick. Hey. And uh, before we do uh, all the fun um, plugs and stuff, uh, we have a special guest with us today. Phil, do you want to introduce? Uh, yeah, we're gonna, uh, Jake LaHutt, who is uh, the politics reporter for the Keen Sentinel, is going to join us. I, I talk, I'll talk a little bit more about him here in a few minutes when we get started. Sounds good. Uh, yeah, all the fun stuff that you guys are used to. If you have questions, comments, beer suggestions, guest suggestions, uh, want to see what we're up to, follow us on Twitter at Barstool Paul, P-O-L. Facebook at Barstool Politics. Uh, beers that we try, you can find on Untapped on iOS or Android. The podcast, uh, Spotify, iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher, Google Play Music, most major podcasting platforms. Uh, and then we are partnered with uh, Predicted, which is a real money political prediction market, uh, pretty much a stock market, stock market for politics where you can buy or sell shares in future political events. Uh, I hope you took advantage uh, over the past week or two. Oh, it was exciting. Yeah, it's it was crazy. Lots of up and downs, uh, depending on which candidate you were looking at. Um, what's great for Barstool pol uh, Politics listeners, uh, if you open up a new account, you receive up to a $20 match on your first deposit. Uh, so, for example, if you open up a $20 account, Predict it will match that $20, giving you $40 to use. Uh, like I said, just use the uh, promo link, predictit.org slash promo slash BarstoolPol20, uh, and check it out. Thank you, That's Predict great. It. Yeah. Let's get into it. There's a lot, of, a lot of stuff to talk about. And thankfully, we have Jake here who's going to give us uh, an insider's perspective about what's going on out in New Hampshire and, and you know. Yeah, pulse on the ground. Yeah. Yeah. Great. Oh, so it was two nights, 20 candidates, a whole lot of questions, even a few answers. Some in Spanish, Nick. Uh, the most notable moment of the Democratic debate was the collision between former Vice President Joe Biden and Senator Kamala Harris. We learned a lot over the two nights, and we're going to try to break it all down for you. Luckily, we have a special guest to offer some insights on the debate. Phil, let me pass it to you, and you can introduce our guest. Yeah, so um, yeah, so uh, Jake is, is joining us. I've, I've had the chance to chat with Jake a few times at a couple of the presidential events. He's, um, uh, I mean, you're the, you're the political reporter for the Keen Sentinel. So, yes. um, and he has his own podcast as well. So I will give you a chance to plug that a little bit, but I mean, you've had, um, uh, we were talking before you came on the air, you've, you've done, you've worked with Politico and with, uh, you know, people at the New Yorker, you've done, you've done this for a while. Uh, you're still really remarkably young for all the experience <laughs> you've had. So, um, but yeah, I mean, you've, especially you know, care next to Phil. <laughs> <laughs> so old, so old, Phil. <laughs> uh, you know, I've 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 talked on here a few times about some of the candidates who have been on campus, but I've I've had a chance to go to like five or six of these rallies and meet these candidates. But you've you've met you know 
you were saying probably 16 of them. So, yeah, uh, yeah I mean, let's I'll, I'll let you kind of talk a little bit about your I don't know. Maybe you can start by talking about you're not from New Hampshire originally. So maybe you can. But no, you're from. Yeah. So talk a little bit about what it's like and, and, you know, what just I don't know, some general thoughts on the primary process and what it's like to be here in New Hampshire. Yeah. Yeah. My pleasure. So uh, thanks again for having me on, guys. Um, I'm originally from upstate New York and your Schenectady, uh, you know, the kind of capital region, Albany, Saratoga area. And um, I had so I really wanted to come here pretty much to get it get in the game right away for 2020. And uh, I guess, you know, I got started in journalism because really I want I, I, like a lot of people in this business, honestly, I wanted to go into politics as a kid. Uh, it was one of those like kind of funny things where on, I think career day in third grade, I had picked like I actually explicitly said I wanted to be a politician for the thing, and everyone's like, "Oh, God help that kid." That's uh, right. I think I wanted to be a dinosaur. So, I know exactly. Right. So you know, I mean, I, so I, I but I I think uh, I went to Wesleyan for undergrad, and then um, did a couple internships in the New York State Capitol, just sort of you know your legislative constituent affairs stuff, and that was when I pretty quickly realized that what the reporters were doing looked like a lot more fun mm-hmm. than what I was doing. So I got much more involved in the student paper, the uh, the Wesleyan Argus, and. I mean, I, I wrote about what started as kind of like, you know, opinion analysis pieces, then started just kind of covering uh, all sorts of events, concerts on campus, different speakers. Um, you know, and when I was editor-in-chief, I really got interested in just kind of the, it, this was sort of ground zero for a lot of the, you know, what people call the yeah. PC wars and stuff. The newspaper was defunded by the student government uh, my sophomore year. So there was, there were a lot of those kind of really fraught issues that I think you're seeing come to the, fo- the fore now. And it was a lot more fun to cover them as a journalist than to have to pick a side in every single scenario. So uh, when I was like a junior, I was Mark Singer's assistant at The New Yorker. Uh, so he was working on a book about Trump. This was, so he, at least I found out about it, it was in February of 2016. So he he's now starting to, you know, he'd won the New Hampshire primary and momentum was building. So I was doing a lot of fact checking on uh, what was, becoming kind of an expanded version of his profile of Trump, the only profile the New Yorker ever did of him, uh, Trump Solo from 1996, I think. And just basic stuff, you know, was he here in that day? Did he say this? And But I also just learned a lot about profile writing from Mark, and, and it was kind of a font of information. I interned for my uh, hometown paper, the Times Union, and then uh, subsequently ended up working for their rivals, my first full-time job after I graduated. Um, and, you know, my DC experience was in Politico. I interned on the, the White House and breaking news teams. And that was really fun. I mean, this was literally my third day was uh, James Comey going on Capitol <laughs> oh, Hill. Wow. So that was a lot of fun. Um, and uh, a lot of it was kind of, you know, sometimes you write a story about a Trump tweet. And, and this was when they were really trying to refine, like, not writing about all of them, but the ones that actually were, like, having an impact. And then I would, you know, pitch stories to the White House team, enterprise ones, uh, I think the first one that broke through was about Jeff Sessions when he was being under attack yeah. and how people in Alabama felt about that. And, you know, just really started kind of developing more contacts. I did one about Trump's vacations to golf courses at Bedminster. <laughs> this is where uh, I'm cited on Eric Trump's Wikipedia page for this one. Uh, <laughs> that was when Eric Trump was getting investigated by Schneiderman. So it, like, it was like it was just a perfect time to be getting into the industry. And then the, you know, fast forward. I lined up a fellowship to basically teach English to high school kids in France because the journalism job market is so brutal. I wanted to have something really, really just like locked away. 
And then I kind of, you know, got into the business last summer and got here in October before the midterms to work at the Sentinel. So, so we've talked on here a lot about how it feels like the world has changed in two years. And like you, I mean, the, the area that you've talked about, like going from, hey, a, a tweet was a big deal to like where we are now. Yeah. That, I mean, that happened really quickly. That's been, you know, a two-year time. Does it feel like the world like of journalism has changed because of Trump? I mean, I, I certainly think so, talking to people, I, especially, you know, M Mark's whole idea for the book was he really thought that the press was kind of out to lunch, in his words, with Trump, and they weren't taking him seriously. Um, the other thing I think is with, I actually wrote a story about Keene State students early when I got here about the boom in journalism majors mm -hmm. in the country, and I think this is a, it's not totally analogous, but it's, I think it's pretty similar to when all the president's men came out in the Nixon era, and you have a kind of new generation of people who, that I'm a little ahead of, but I'm like 24 or so, you know, they, they kind of want to get in to really hold power to account in a way that might have been different than someone who grew up during the Clinton, Bush, Obama years. Um, but, you know, I also just think that... Uh, whether it's the kind of the press becoming the story with the attacks on the press and, and media and stuff that it's it's kind of sparked I think a, a lot of frankly good self-reflection and kind of introspection but the nice thing about you know coming to a place like the Sentinel in New Hampshire is you one uh, you have the tradition of the editorial board meetings so like Barack Obama you know sat right in our conference room with our sort of big board behind him and uh, so did everyone who ran for the state house and you know the midterms for the most part. So it's just great to kind of have that real flexibility between you know kind of top down. Has that been surprising? You know, this is, I've been in Keene for four years now, and so I came at the during the basically the very end of the general election last time. Um, but it's been for somebody who's not from New England or from New Hampshire originally. I, it's amazing to me the extent to which. Like, what, you know, just a handful of people can get the attention of a Barack Obama, or like, you know, Elizabeth Warren, who will sit and chat with me for a, a long time. I mean, I'm, I'm unimportant. It, it's, it's like shifted my view of, well, I, I was skeptical of like the down home, like, mm. you know, the, the New Hampshire style politics until I came here. And I, I kind of see the benefit of it now that I've actually seen people in these small rooms and you kind of learn a, a lot about them. I, I, what's your take? Is it good? Is it bad? Oh, yeah. No, that, 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 I, I think I go back and forth a lot about this. I mean, in general, I think I'm very pro New Hampshire primary, <laughs> you know, just for my own kind of narrow self-interest. But it is, there is something to be said about the voters being, I think, better informed than the average American on a variety of issues. And it's not just I think some people think like, oh, the candidate comes to New Hampshire, they got to talk about, you know, uh, rural broadband, opioids, mm -hmm. and guns. <laughs> and that's not at all the way it turns out. And, you know, I, we did a story on uh, how nuclear proliferation was a very common concern among voters in a way that was, you know, not really kind of evident in just the way the national conversations going on about this campaign. But you have a lot of, you know, you have Vietnam era protest folks during town meeting season, you have these non-binding resolutions that kind of state the town's values. And this year, there happened to be a bunch of them about nuclear weapons. So like that's something hmm. the candidates kind of have to suddenly have a more, you know, honed in answer on. Um, on the other hand, you know, coming from upstate New York, I mean, it's interesting just because we have, I, I mean, I come from a much more diverse area where you have a mix of some, you know, those four core cities of Saratoga, Troy, Albany, Schenectady, certainly a lot of rural areas, a lot of suburban areas. And, you know, coming here, I mean, obviously the the demographics of the state are different. The, the, the whole conversation about the aging population in New Hampshire, I find 
astonishing. Like the fact that there's like a, an issue here that's referred to as youth retention. What are we talking about? You know, but I mean, so it, it is a kind of unique uh, landscape in that respect. And I mean, I, I just think that I, I kind of like that the voters are spoiled in a way mm. that like they don't really want to consider you until they see you three, four, five times in person. Yeah. I think that, you know, that's pretty good. The one thing that is interesting is, you know, some people, they're super dialed in. Other people, I tell them what I do if I'm meeting them at, like, you know, a restaurant or getting coffee or whatever. They're like, oh, yeah, I'm probably not going to pay attention until, like, February next year. I'm like, <laughs> <laughs> you're in New Hampshire. Are there certain, because you're on the ground and you see things in a way that, you know, most of the country can't see it. Do you see certain candidates adapting better to the New Hampshire style than others? I mean, do some struggle with, with the dynamic there? Yeah, I think the the most interesting part, I, I think this goes a little bit to Iowa too, but more specifically New Hampshire is that you need to have the really the real finite resource of the candidates' time, and some of them have certainly committed to coming here more. Uh, the top ones are you know people like Andrew Yang, uh, you know John Delaney. I'm pretty sure he's going to hit the 100 mark for wow. individual trips hmm. uh, when he comes if he hasn't done it already. I've been loosely keeping track. Bernie's only come like three or four times. Yeah. Biden's only come three times, but there's, I would describe a cluster of candidates who have staffed up in a very smart way. So for Bernie, it's, I mean, there are a lot of holdovers from last time and that's a, that's a kind of unique case, but in that kind of, you know, as Nate Silver would say, tier, you know, 1B or 2A or whatever with Kamala Harris, uh, Warren, I, I uh, certainly Cory Booker, those three have kind of very robust state director down staffs and now building into field offices, organizers. The Judge campaign is scaling up there, too. Um, and then, you know, it, other ones like Julian Castro, for example, I think has, you know, he's in touch with surrogates, but doesn't maybe have the kind of uh, muscle to hire a ton of people yet. So, you know, the, a lot of the candidates who you've been hearing about standing out well in the debate are also ones that have kind of carefully planned resources here where other ones it's kind of like a one-man show or one woman show and then when the candidate comes through uh so it's more honestly about staffing decisions and hiring and now we're getting into the phase like elizabeth warren was the first candidate to open a field office in this part of the state in Keene. so those steps start to becoming important once you hear people complaining about getting mailers that's another kind of key oh, sure. that you know it hits people because you know they do a ton of events but uh you know on our recent show the, the podcast i host called pod for your die at the sentinel we had uh dante scala this great political scientist at unh come on and we were really looking at kind of the demographic clusters in the state and how that factors into decision making so in our neck of the woods you know, Cheshire County kind of wrapping along the Connecticut River on the Vermont border, we're only about like 20% tops of Democratic primary voters in the state. Whereas if you look at where the candidates hit the most, half the primary voters are just in Rockingham and Hillsborough counties right along the Massachusetts border in the southeastern corner of the state. So that's unsurprisingly you're know, around Manchester, Concord, Nashua. That's where the, the candidates are spending most of their time. But a couple have been outliers. So like Warren, you know, to, just to really kind of go yeah. to the court question, She's hit Grafton County really hard, which might look weird on paper, but that's that's, that's, that's where where's Grafton? That's where Dartmouth is, Hanover and Lebanon. Mm. So it's about like about you know maybe an hour, fifteen minutes north of here or so. Um, But you know what Scal was saying was a candidate like Warren, given how well Bernie Sanders did last time, 
would want to pay particular attention to areas around Keene and around Hanover, mostly because they're the only areas where you have, you know, professors, doctors, people in social services this far west in the state when the rest is surrounded by pretty rural areas without those kind of institutions. So you have a different kind of more dialed in, more educated voter. And Bernie won two out of three of them in 2016. So if you can chip away there while everyone else is getting bombarded in the big counties, you know, you can maybe run up the score. And when you have a crowded field, suddenly you get to that 20 percent, 30 percent range. And, you know, you're you win. It's really interesting. You know, watching here, you it it really is kind of. Uh, like a, it, it, the whole election in micro, right? So that yeah. it's the managing resources, it's figuring out where to spend money, how to target voters. And, and you know, New Hampshire's, I, people in New Hampshire don't like to think about it, but, it, you know, I'm, I'm from Texas. You guys are from Illinois. New Hampshire's small, but it, it like, it, the other part is that I, the people who really did well, maybe we can use this as sort of a transition into the day. The people who did well in the debates seem like people who have had some traction in New Hampshire. Like the, my experience mm-hmm. is that, you know, it was uh, some of the people who did well were surprising. So I, Julian Castro, for example, is yeah. somebody who may have surprised a lot of people on a national level. But my experience seeing he he seemed to kind of connect with with New Hampshire voters. And so, you know, it gives me some like I, I don't know. It, it just adds to my belief that New Hampshire voters are, are pretty good at kind of whittling the field down in some way. Should, should we turn to the yeah, debate? Yeah, that sounds yeah. great. Yeah. Yeah, well, maybe let's start, Jake. What was your so just sort of gut reaction? Anything that stood out when you were watching the debate? I mean, obviously the big, big most of the conversation is about about Kamala Harris and and Joe Biden. But what what struck you as somebody who watches this and follows this closely? Yeah, actually, I'll be right with Phil. I think Julian Castro uh, really made the most of coming to the stage with a specific strategy, executing it not over swinging, presenting himself very well by simply exploiting how better work cannot talk in specifics at this yeah. point about immigration, despite running, you know, this kind of, uh, you, you know, never ending campaigns and sticking on Ted Cruz. So he, that, was, he was the one who the first statement he made was in Spanish, right? Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. And it didn't matter what yeah. question he got asked. He was answering it in Spanish. Oh, you know? <laughs> yeah. And, you know, and, and so I, th- I thought Castro did really well. And, and you know, when he came here, he, I think we were both of this one, Phil. He, so it, it, it was like a Sunday night, maybe, you know, 30 people there, mostly older crowd. One of the things we actually printed these debate guides in back to back days of the paper where we did a sort of a biographical breakdown of the candidates. Here are some issues they've been running on. If we've written about their policy proposal, we would include that coverage. And then how many visits they've made to the area. And unsurprisingly, Keene State was like the most popular destination these candidates have hit every single time. Uh, And Castro, you know, drew, I mean, a lot of these honestly draw a much older crowd than students. But Castro's crowd in particular was just regular kind of folks from town on a Sunday night. And he was able to weave through you know, his executive experience as mayor of San Antonio and then his HUD experience in the cabinet. And that's what you saw in the debate was he was really able to drop some specifics, but in short order, succinctly, and kind of tell his personal story well. Kamala Harris, I think, did that on a much higher plane, obviously, in the issues of Joe Biden, where she was able to wed personal experience with this is how this policy decision has had ramifications on my life and all these other Americans. And, you know, that's where they were setting themselves apart. I thought, uh, you know, Buttigieg's answer on the, uh, the, the, the police shooting in South Bend was unusual for a politician. I mean, it was, it was just straight up humility. He said, you know, I didn't get the job done. And I think people appreciated that kind of thing. But beyond Beto uh, and the Spanish clearly not coming off all the people, I thought that uh, 
it, it was just tough. Everyone was trying so hard to have a viral moment. Mm -hmm. And, you yep. know, I've heard this from the campaigns going in. So I'm kind of like, oh, man, don't overdo it. <laughs> you know, some it paid all. Like Bill de Blasio, he's a New Yorker. He interrupted <laughs> a lot of people. He was mansplaining. It, it worked for him, yeah. you know, and, 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 for lack of a better term. Yeah. Kirsten Gillibrand, also a New Yorker, interrupted a lot of people. It didn't seem to pay off for her. And obviously there's a very clear gender dynamic there that you'd go on about for, you know, eons. But I thought that, you know, the more and more they tried to kind of chomp in and not get their time, uh, the more they sort of dug themselves, you know, into a hole. And the last one is Tulsi Gabbard, just because of this mm -hmm. area, this connection. She is extremely popular among some really dedicated yeah. early activists. I'm not saying it's a lot of people, but among the people who like have been paying attention for months, like you, she's one of the only candidates who you'll see a lawn sign for right. at this point. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you know, there are like four or five of them I've seen. She's very and, interesting. She's she's the only one that I've seen that's been that's been really effective in using social media and YouTube in a way that isn't necessarily from a a, a sales standpoint. She mm -hmm. was the first candidate who put out just kind of a. A, uh, a a clip compilation of the debate that didn't have anything necessarily to do with her. It wasn't her best moments. It was just these are the main points that you need to be aware of from the debates, and that was it. It's just posted by her, and and that's it. It's very, you know, the, like I said, she's not selling herself. She's trying to be informative more than anything, which I thought was a really interesting take. To, it is. Uh, it may not get her the nomination, but <laughs> no. But I, I mean, it's. I, I think it's that. You know, we're like we've talked yeah. about. We're in this this completely different climate that no one is really sure what the rules are anymore to some extent. But um, she seems to kind of at least tangentially be aware that there is a shift to kind of a a uh, a need to be less kind of over the top, yeah. you know, standard politician and be able to share information without seeming like you're trying to put a narrative behind well, it. Right, and then trying to get, you could feel a, a whole bunch of the candidates felt like they were trying to get that soundbite. I mean, it really, yeah. it, it was awkward and it was disjointed in the debate. Maybe that works well for the campaign moments and the ads. It doesn't but work well for the party, I can't No, no, no. They're fighting over each other to get heard, but that, that doesn't, like, I... I, I, I texted you during yeah. it, Bill. I, I was like, this is painful. Like, I, I, this makes me dislike everyone watching mm -hmm. this happen. Especially the first night. I think the second night was a bit more entertaining. But yeah, that first night was, was a lot of that. Should we start at the top and just talk through some of sure. the people? Talk about Biden's performance. I mean, he's kind of the big one. He had the most to lose, I think. And it seems like a lot of people thought he did just that. He, he lost. But uh, it didn't feel like a disaster to me, but it didn't feel good for him. I, mean, well, I don't there. know. What do you all what do you all think? Uh, I think eye contact is something that's going to be lingering with him for a while. I mean, during that exchange with Kamala Harris, she's looking right at him and he's kind of just staring into maybe a camera, maybe the audience <laughs> when, you know, and I'm not sure if he knew where she was going with it. I mean, clearly she found the window, you know, they're probably, she probably would have, it sounds like the moderators actually were going to just straight up ask her and like tear up for attacking him. And she just sort of blew right through it. was ready to go after someone else answered the question. But he, you know, that split screen is crucial because you don't get that in retail events. You don't get that in a cable news hit. You don't get that at a rally, but in the debate, you have her making the case directly to him and he's just kind of looking out. And I think that, you know, something I talked about with some political scientists before this with uh, Professor Scala again and Andy Smith at UNH was, you know, simply the juxtaposition of Biden flanked by Pete Buttigieg and Kamala Harris, that does a lot on its own. I also just thought like his whole thing, like, oh, my time's up at the end of the answer. <laughs> right, <yes. you> know? <laughs> uh, I mean, he's known as being an endearing guy, but at, at, at a certain point I, I was, I was kind of like, 
Yeah, he maybe had to get a little bit of rust off. Yeah, you know, he hasn't debated anyone in that setting since what? Yeah. Uh, Paul Ryan in twenty twelve. Yeah, and that that's that stood out. And you mentioned he's only been to New Hampshire what three times. And, yeah. and so you wonder whether he's out of shape in terms of campaigning because he's not involved in the day-to-day events. And he looked he looked tired. He looked, to use a Trump's term, low energy. Uh, and, it may be, and his campaign staff behind the scenes was suggesting that he hadn't prepped well, he for this. Se- he seemed like he was constantly on his heels and yeah. just, just trying to um, – he, he was constantly under attack. I don't know why I can't think of the words. Um, but his whole his whole premise seemed to be on work that he had done previously as opposed to any sort of policy decisions that he could potentially make going forward, which did not come off well. He, we, we had talked about that as his strategy, right? That that's a, you know, he's he's the front runner. Um, you know, he was not taking a, he wasn't laying out very clear policies. He yeah. was just running on his association with Obama, his long history. And I think up to a point that works, but that's why people are going to have to go after him because he's, he's right. And, and it's why he's, I don't know, he's going to have to shake that up in some way. Um, mm-hmm. some... I don't know. Do you, do you see this as like a precursor for what's coming for him? Or do you think he's going to be able to sort of bounce back or respond and, and shift the, the focus or the, the approach his campaign is taking? I think he, my guess is they'll try to steady the ship. There was some interesting, we haven't seen a lot of polling data yet, but there was there was some data on the electability, and so he was killing everybody on electability. His numbers in May of 2019 was 70%, you know, they said he was electable. When they did one just recently, he's down to 57%, so that was a big drop. Uh, Warren and Kamala Harris had like 10-point jumps. Suddenly those three candidates now are, are measuring about the same on electability. So it's going to, Biden's going to have to do something to, to reassert himself. This, mm-hmm. yeah, yeah, and this has been said before, but I mean, you know, he, I, I think everyone might be, it might be foreboding that his numbers are just so strong among African American voters in South Carolina, among older voters, kind of across the board. But those groups were backing Hillary Clinton in the 2008 primary until Obama proved he went Iowa, and that's where I think that, you know, Warren's organizing, Booker's organizing. In particular, they are really stacked up in those states. They're in touch with local politicians. There, I went to. I don't even know what the community event was the other night, but there was a Booker staffer who was introduced there by State hmm. Senator Jay Khan. You know, they're just they're kind of everywhere, and that will pay off down the road. What I wonder in the kind of the internet viral age that you know Biden is not as used to as a candidate is could that windfall support happen sooner? And I think when he, when he talks to the campaigns privately, I think that, you know they, they sort of see. Well, all the campaigns who are not the Sanders and Biden campaign, <laughs> they see the Sanders and Biden support as a kind of avalanche or windfall just waiting to happen. And, you know, you, you want to just position yourself to not overly antagonize them to their base, but also be kind of very welcoming once they're looking to, you know, shop somewhere else. Mm-hmm. Well, you, it seems like they're they're I mean, Biden and 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 Bernie are I mean, a lot of the, the early polls even showed this it's it's like a huge amount basically just name recognition right and as other people get more recognition as as you know uh warren or harris or Buttigieg or booker or these other people have you know castro nobody knows who julian castro is even though he was a cabinet secretary like as they have those moments that's gonna i you know i think uh, there are some there have to be some people who are committed to biden and to bernie but there's also got to be a lot who are just 
you know, at this moment that he's the person that I'm familiar with. And that's that's yeah. going to change. Well, even after the debate, Kamala Harris was asked about Joe Biden and all she had was nice things to say about him. Right. I mean, she just tore him down and she's like, oh, he's a wonderful candidate, has done a lot for this country. I mean, it's suggesting is what you guys are saying is that they don't want to alienate those those potential voters. They want to pull them over. <laughs> But her campaign also had T-shirts out for sale the next morning. Oh my with that, with god! That, whatever I, I was that girl. Yeah. Or whatever the, the thing she said about busing. Yeah, thirty dollars like, T-shirts. Really every, everybody who like it seems like people who are in the know about her campaign like that was it wasn't just that they were planning to attack her. They were, I mean, planning to attack him. That was they were planning to attack him in this very specific way. Yeah. Yeah, which is also right. which is also where Biden should have been better prepared. Like he should have known that was coming. Yeah. I mean, another thing another thing just about being on the ground here, you, you, you know, you, when you're at the the event I think embeds are probably the best to talk about this because they are literally following the, the various permutations of the campaigns from town to town, and which you know can you if you, you can imagine your uncle who tells the same story at every reunion <laughs> that's what you're going through eight times a day with so many people but you know little choices that the staff makes Kamala Harris's campaign that is a tightly run ship they're very professional a lot of former Obama folks. A lot of folks with a lot of experience in the consulting world. I mean, they're you know, nothing is kind of uh, an oversight with them. Is what I put it. And you know, it's uh, it's not. I'm not saying it's like a Hillary Clinton rope line from before, but like you know, they are disciplined. They're in it for the long haul. You know, uh, and I think also that some of the. Like, you know, whether you want to say the rehearsed lines worked or not, it was hit or miss with a lot of them. Like Eric Swalwell, I would put on the other end. If you watch cable news, you know that he likes to do these kind of gimmick things. <laughs> it's weird because, like, he's the, the, the jokes are older than he is, you know, a lot of the time. <laughs> yes. But, like, you think at the end where he's like, uh, what, what about, like, how Washington smells worse than his son's diapers? <laughs> yeah. And I'm like, yeah. oh. <laughs> yeah, I mean, he just kind of can't so help but like do that. But other ones work well. I mean, I think Julian Castro, for example, choosing to hold back on speaking Spanish and then have the adios to Trump line, that made it on a lot of late night comedy shows. It's pretty simple. It's not like you're swinging for a home run there, but it right. works. So I was interested in how the canned stuff kind of did and didn't play well for, you know, depending on the candidate's personality and how they executed it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it was really interesting. You know, so uh, a guest we've had on the show, uh, Suzanne Chad, political scientist here at North Central College, has been talking about Castro for a long time. And she said, mm. she's argued that he's the one that has experience, uh, to, uh, to what you know, to Jake, is so good at transitioning. Uh, it, it did feel like that was a good night for him. I, I, I hope he can sustain it. It would be fun to see him do well. If, if he had been on the second night, it would have yes. been interesting mm-hmm. to see how he did. That all, yeah. I mean, you know, there have been all these lists of winners and losers from the first debate. And I feel like you could really just say everyone on the first night was a loser. Yeah. Right. And not in a not in not in a I don't mean that in like they're all they, they, they were just they're all screwed by not yeah, being on the same night. stage as Bernie and Biden. Right. Yeah. And so and that's that's Warren. But it's also yeah, who all, it was. It was Castro. Who else was on that first night? See, I already Elizabeth Warren and Castro and. Yeah, yeah. Booker, Booker, you know, a bunch of my friends who don't follow politics closely were like, "Hey, this Booker guy is pretty legit, yeah. wasn't he on your show?" And that's one of those things where like, yeah. they, they clearly weren't paying attention. They clearly didn't listen to my show, but you know, <laughs> <laughs> they just saw the post online. Friends. <laughs> no, I'm kidding. But you know, little stuff like that comes up. But like Tim Ryan. You know, like who's yeah. coming away from that saying like, okay, I know that he, yes, he repeats that he's from Youngstown, Ohio, and stuff, but I think they they just had a, a tough thing. And it, I've been frankly very interested in discussions of like, should there have been a JV debate? Mm-hmm. You know, I think the Republican one the last time came off as demeaning, but that's only because Trump was 
explicitly demeaning yeah. the entire field, <laughs> and it was sad. You just see Bobby Jindal and George Pataki just kind of hunched over, you know, like five o'clock in the afternoon. Like, so I don't know. Other, I saw other ideas like Ezra Klein and Nate Silver. Those types were like, you know, have five me sessions. I'm not sure if the networks would really want to honestly like hemorrhage ratings to do that, but you know the the new threshold. I think it's not for the next one in August, but for the what the one in the fall, they double the the thresholds for fundraising. Mm-hmm. I don't think they're gonna be able to keep up with that, and I think you saw a real sense of desperation among some candidates. I mean, you remember Kirsten Gillibrand is a name brand national politician right. who did not hit the donor threshold until after Marianne Williamson and Andrew Yang and Michael Bennett who had to do cancer treatment in months when Gillibrand was already in a full swing of her campaign. So, I, I mean, I, I think a lot of them are, are running into real tricky issues. Steve Bullock was coming here because he wasn't invited. And, you know, I, I think unfortunately they kind of, from like a quasi game theory perspective, they've been forced into these bad choices of having to take huge swings to get attention and most of them do not have the skill set to do that. And I think that's going to start to – that in and of itself is going to start punishing them at the next debate and so on. Mm-hmm. It, it, it needs to be smaller. Like, oh, I you yeah. know, want, want to – I know that there's, like, the whole fiasco from last time around where people felt like the Democratic Party, like, pushed other people out and left it basically as Hillary. You don't want to end up as that, but but at some point it's got to be – you. <laughs> they need a JV – like – I, yeah, and it feels like there's a lot of people who are it's just not their moment, right? Like Gillibrand's mm-hmm. an example of somebody who's smart and, and was, in my mind, a big, you know, I, I'm surprised that she's not doing better. But when you're I mean, her on her her um, her, you know, women's rights stuff is 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 very timely. But otherwise, she's fairly moderate. I, I think about Hickenlooper sort of the same thing, like in a different year, Hickenlooper might have a chance. But this is, it just seems like this is not the year. Yeah. Like people are, are angry and fired up and it just doesn't seem like that's going to get people, especially in a field this big. Well, in the, 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 the micro lanes, I mean, obviously you look at like Castro handled that where yeah. he's like, look, Beto and I from Texas, only one can survive. One of us <laughs> needs to go now. And, you know, I think he effectively did that. Look at Michael Bennett and John Hickenlooper, also both of them went to my college, which is, we're all having a huge chuckle of that because they're the least Wesleyan people in America. <laughs> <laughs> like, they, um, you know, at a certain point, you got to start to identify people who are kind of just like conflated with you in a lot of areas. And, there's a lot of goodwill, and I don't think they want to do that. But the, the other thing about just, I think, the, the the formatting and the weight of choice, Malcolm Gladwell went on uh, with Ari Melber recently and talked about how, like, all these psychological studies show that, let's say we were to line up, you know, uh, 20 cups of sugar water, and you have to rank which one is the highest concentration of sugar. And you, you can, theoretically, but it shows no one can do it when there are that many. And basically, Gladwell shows all these studies where almost no matter what the product is, whether it's like, you know, ragu or milk or wine, whatever, once you have more than five to like seven choices, you start to make incorrect decisions mm-hmm. because your your brain can only handle so much. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I mean, I think it's survivable at this point, but uh, like you can tell, you, you hear from voters, it's literally just the sheer number of candidates is prohibiting people who want to pay attention from paying attention. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I think maybe the doubling of the threshold gets it there, or maybe some of them just like kind of taking the gloves off and being like, look, like this person does not have the chops to hang in the race. I do. Because like a lot of, you saw this goodwill stuff earlier. I remember when, for example, and I, I, I hate to come back to Jillbrand here, but she hadn't hit the donor threshold yet, right? Suddenly Booker and Buttigieg staffers are on Twitter saying like, hey, I donated to them. Like, you know, mm. it's like, 
that can only go on for so right. long. I mean, the, right. the, the knives have got to come out, so to speak, right. and you have to start doing something because the voters just it's it's stressful for them to to do it. Uh, so. Oh, no, I, I think at this point, though, people at least got enough of a tasting that they can, you know, maybe try to track someone until the next one and then reevaluate, you know? Mm-hmm. Phil, you brought up something interesting. You were talking about, like, uh, you know, Hickenlooper being a moderate uh, position. I, I think, to me, this is one of the more interesting divides in the debate between those... Uh, you know, the, the Warrens, the Bernies, who yeah. are talking about, we need, ma- I mean, Warren keeps using that phrase, major structural change. Mm-hmm. I mean, she's talking about not just tinkering on the margins, that we've got to rework things. Where when you hear Biden, and I think Hickenlooper and others, it's like, you know, the system is basically good. Trump's a big problem. We got to get rid of him. But then, you know, you know, the trains are basically running on time. How do you see this playing out? I mean, I, I, you, know, you guys are on the ground and you have New Hampshire, the pulse there. Do you do voters are they leaning one way or the other? Do you get a sense they want major change, or does is that intimidating to intimidating to them? Yeah, I, I hate to just keep parroting uh, Dante Scala, but you should have him on the show instead of me. But this is another really good point he <laughs> made, which was that uh, th- there's been this real rise of, and this is basically through retirees, a rise of reform-minded, highly educated Democratic voters in the state most of whom did not grow up in New Hampshire, didn't have a lot of family here, but they're from, you know, Massachusetts, New Jersey, New York, Connecticut. They come up here, they retire, and they bring, you know, their political values with them. Because obviously, you know, the, the kind of baseline Democratic positions here is that it's pretty radical if you're in favor of an income tax and if you're favor, <laughs> in, in favor of gun control restrictions, which, yeah, I mean, today you, you put that on, on, on Twitter – you know, and tag a normal Democratic candidate, you'll get roasted. So (laughs) that's already starting to change a lot. And I think that, um, let's say, for example, I think there's a likely scenario that perhaps Iowa Iowa plays it safe and they pick a Biden or they pick, you know, a kind of a more institutionalist person. There's totally a a streak here ready to be tapped into people who want to flip the script and go with the reformist candidate. I think that's why you saw Bernie just run up the score so much the last time around. And they, you know... um, but I also think, frankly, Buttigieg and Gabbard have an interesting element for the Vietnam War era folks, because, mm-hmm. I mean, we, we, we've we been at war for like 18 years and, you know, we really kind of, kind of compartmentalize it in our society. We do the thank you to the troops and, you know, the Colin Kaepernick story might rile up some kind of tensions, but generally we don't really kind of confront that presence. And what Buttigieg and Gabbard have done as, you know, actual veterans in the arena is they give some credence to a lot of these anti-war arguments that people have been trying to break through for a long time. And they weren't able to do that with someone who may not have served before. So that's been interesting to see. Like, I think you're seeing a lot of, you know, Tulsi Gabbard just kind of throwing that anti-regime change thing mm-hmm. in there. Uh, you know, Buttigieg having a major foreign policy quasi-doctrine type speech. People here, at least, are really into that kind of stuff. On the other hand, I mean, this is generational. And I think you got someone like Biden where I think you hear a lot of code words when it begins the quote unquote identity politics stuff. And really that means like, I don't like these annoying woke kids. And like, I mean, and I get, I mean, I went to a super liberal college to like these, like people get irritated. And I think that's where, um, you know, candidates are starting to run into trouble. Like, for example, early in her candidacy, uh, you know, Gillibrand, Harris did this a little bit too. Warren, I, I actually think, used the word intersectionality in the debate, and that didn't get a lot of pickup. But, like, there are new things, you know, coming in. And the question is, how much are the younger voters going to demand it, and how much are they going to show up 
to actually have that kind of talk pay off. I think that's where no one really knows where to kind of like sink in at this point. Sure. Yeah, I, you know, I, you, I this this divide is is really interesting, and I my I think. I, from my experience of seeing the people, like the questions at the at the events that I've gone to are, I mean, they're they're hard hitting, yeah, pretty liberal. I mean, they're they're pretty, they're not extreme, but it's they're not, you know, it's not people. They're not, they're, 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 yeah, they're not looking for Biden's like, hey, I was, you know, I've been there. They're looking for answers, right? They want answers about environmental policy. They want answers on foreign policy. They want answers on not just like, do you support Medicare for all, but how are you going to get there? So my sense is in a primary, that that wing of the party that like we are progressive, we want it's the sort of the the um, Bernie Warren wing is I like I, they're going to they're going to play a, a huge the I think the biggest part in determining the candidate. The 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 problem is the the when you get to the mainstream, the general election, right? Mm -hmm. That's when you have to win over people who have voted for, who were Trump, who were, you know, the Obama Trump voters, you have to win over people who are really disillusioned for Trump. And that's where the Hickenloopers or somebody sure. like that might be. And so I, the people that I kind of, I haven't really thought this through, but I think there's there there are some interesting candidates and the ones we've kind of mentioned them, like Warren is definitely of the over, you know, over, we have to dramatically change, structurally change the system. But she talks about it in ways in which she talks about very specific policies right. about how we're going to do it. It's not just Bernie who is like all rhetoric about this. It's not he's not all rhetoric. He has policies as well. But uh, she talks about it in a way that doesn't feel as revolutionary, like mm -hmm. because yeah. she's kind of laid out these policies or Buttigieg, who's less revolutionary. But the rhetoric he uses is kind of, you know, he talks about like reclaiming the ideas of. Uh, you know, freedom or of, you know, security or patriotism or whatever from the Republican Party. And so th there are some people who kind of who seem to be of one camp, but are able to talk to the other a little bit. And they're the ones that kind of intrigue me that, that I'm, yeah. it'll be interesting to see how they do. Which, which is what, you know, the uh, American studies and sociology majors out there called code switching, which mm -hmm. I think people like Booker and Harris are able to do extremely well yeah. and are very talented at doing it and have done it in their careers before where you look at how Booker was able to go after Biden on kind of very firm ground or that stuff. And then obviously Harris really took it to another level because it was on live television. But they also are kind of like, hey, you know, like we have a sense of pragmatism and this is not all just kind of like, you know, for the sake of the ideals. And they thread that needle pretty well. The one thing I think, you know, this will be a team sport by the general election if everyone sort of plays well in the sandbox and they can all kind of have their own little <laughs> unique micro roles. But I think the caution that uh, people rightfully make is how much of this is baked into the cake already, you know? Like, I mean, how convincible is someone who voted for Trump when, you know, I mean, when I talk to Trump voters around here, the, the main thing they say is like, he kept his promises. Mm -hmm. Like, I mean, you know, I think you would not know this if you, like you're a, you watch Bill Maher and you listen to NPR and you know, I mean, which is frankly like two thirds of the electorate out here. But for the Trump supporters, they're like, some of them honestly are like, I was kind of appalled by him when he was running. And then he started to keep his promises and he picked the judges and he did the tax cuts. And like, they actually have a very hard time wanting to pick an alternative based yeah. on their longstanding political interest. Because, the, you know, Trump has really done a lot of just very popular conventional Republican 
things that have been overshadowed by, you know, putting kids in cages and, you know, I mean, a lot of the other uh, things that, you know, draw the world's attention away, but they have a hard time coming around to that. And that's the thing that like putting all the stock into a Biden, a Bennett, a Hickenlooper, I, you know, it's, I think that people have to sort of really start to look, and I'm not sure if it's through analytics or just kind of a gut feeling of like, you know, at a certain point, how much of this is basically just, you know, 40% of the country versus 40% of the country and who's just simply trying, yeah, yeah, who's going to get more excited about, about, about a candidate and come out? I mean, I think you saw that with Hillary Clinton in, you know, certainly in Michigan is a great example of somewhere where the African-American vote was just much more depressed than it was under Barack Obama. And you also got to look at, I think the midterm dynamics, people should pay, I think, closer attention to the sort of, it's becoming hacking already, but the kind of suburban mom who's very concerned about gun control. And, you know, it's already becoming a trope, but the fact that it's becoming a trope is a sign that it's a real strength that Democrats are having in kind of almost seeping into the values area of voting. And, you know, a lot of those people may not have paid attention, may not have voted in 2016, and, you know, are kind of getting used to the rules of politics, especially people my age. So, you know, meeting them where they are and trying to kind of, you know, really uh, not go too double down on the identity stuff, but also just not kind of, I think, what, what what's annoying a lot of Democrats about Biden is this, what they think is almost like a fetishization of this Midwestern guy in a diner. And, you know, I think that, um, the, I don't think they need to actually have to make that trade-off yet, because it, I'm not even sure if it's clear that there is a beneficial trade-off to be made there, at, given how much Trump has saturated his, you know, persona into the country. Sure. Mm -hmm. Should probably... Final thoughts on this? No, this is good. Uh, you know, the one thing I was just, as you were talking, I was thinking, Phil and I, we've been texting about this, you know, where the Republican Party is versus the moderate votes versus uh, compared to where the Democrats are, right? And so the Republicans mm. have drifted pretty far to the right, but the Democratic voters are still, a good chunk of them is still more centrist. And so for me, I'm excited to see, I think the the Warrens, the Bernies, they're really energizing candidates, but there's a lot of Democratic voters across the country who are are still pretty vanilla. And I, I don't know how this is going to play out, right? Mm -hmm. It's it's just a difficult road to hoe uh, because, you know, Biden is not going to excite a lot of people, but he's safe. Um, yeah. So if you, you know, we, you and I texted a little bit um, it was interesting watching the predicted stuff. Did you, were you paying? Oh, it was to the, fascinating. The, yeah. yeah. I, um, uh, the movement, I mean, it was Biden was, you know, the markets had Biden as what, like 40 cents before the elect, before the debate. It was like he was at 40 and everybody else was kind of, you know, in the teens. And it's pretty much, it's shifted to where basically a three way race, yeah. a three way tie between Biden, uh, Warren, Warren Harris, yeah. which is probably how I would. Yeah. Summarize the thing right now with the two, the next tier uh, being Buttigieg and uh, um, Bernie. Um, yeah. And then maybe, that, maybe Beto, you know, there's a maybe, whole oof, bunch of people who are in there. Yeah. Castro and some of those others that are kind of clanging Booker maybe in there. Yeah. So who, I, I, we can just kind of finish up with a quick, uh, like who, who improved their, I mean, I guess maybe the answer is, is Harris, but, it, but other than, other than, or maybe you don't think it's it's Harris. Who do you think did the did the most to sort of further their campaign or to who had the who comes out as the biggest winner from the debates? Yeah, I, I think Harris. I think you're right. Now, what's interesting for me is that Harris hasn't had the spotlight on her much. And now it's going to now it's going to turn to her. And as a former prosecutor, 
there's going to be skeletons there. As a, yeah. You've got to make a lot of hard choices. And she was able to hide behind some of the bigger candidates. And now that, that spotlight's going to be on her. And we'll see how she responded. Biden didn't do well with the spotlight. She, she may run with it. Mm-hmm. Oh. Nick, what do you think? <clears throat> In terms of just kind of gross positive movement yeah. I, I don't think it's any of those we we knew that Warren and and Harris were gonna most likely come out on top in this situation I, you know we we talked about it previously I think Tulsi Gabbard really made a, a lot of, of headway in this um, she may not necessarily be presidential material this time around but it might be a different position within a new administration and she could potentially be president at some point going forward or Buttigieg or someone else who has that kind of not necessarily centrist but centrist enough to pull in the voters that you need to and also bring in a significant portion of the the more progressive element of the Democratic Party. Bernie and Marianne Williamson. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> oh, girl, you she are like, so wrong. She was one of the most Googled yes. candidates through the whole surge. And, you know, I, I just it's one of those things post 2016. You can't write it off completely. Sure. I covered an event where she was here and within a 50 minute span, she speculated about her own assassination, the Rothschilds, <laughs> what is going on in Antarctica. And I'm not sure if it was a flat earther question, if it was about aliens, but with her answer, I, I couldn't really tell. Oh. And, you know, with the kind of wellness industry booming, I don't know. I think like people who, you know, might not be uh, sold on someone might be, you know, buying into that. God bless that kook. That made for such a good time. See, her, they, I, you know, you talked about seeing the Tulsi sides. I, I, Marion Williamson is the other one that, like, people around here, I, I, I don't think it's widespread, but the people who like her, they like her. Yeah. And it is bizarre to me, but, you know, to each their own, I guess. Um, well, I, you know, I think my, 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 my I, I don't know, I would stick with, uh, I don't think that this is not his time, but I think uh, Julian Castro did a lot to yeah. raise his his That's a more serious answer. And I think he yeah. like he's not. I, again, who knows? We're a long ways out, so he could you know use this as a springboard to move further up. But he seems like he put himself squarely in like a VP debate, like in a in a discussion for VP in that election. I'm um, sorry, in that de- in the he, in already, that he, already, he already was last time. He, yeah. he was vetted by Clinton for. That's right. Debate. That's right. So I I think he's he's got a future, and and I don't know if it's yet, but I, I think he did a lot to kind of you know make people aware yeah. of him. We've talked about it previously. There are there are several candidates in here who could potentially be president, and they're 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 not they're not fully baked yet. Mm-hmm. They, there's some good <laughs> foundational stuff there. Beto being probably the top of that list, but. I, he's he just, needs, oh boy, deep dish pizza that guy for a while. It's, <laughs> it's, it's going to be 30 I, to 40 minutes. I was excited for him, but it's just the lack of specificity. I, you just, oh, yeah, I, I was kind of surprised. And they all have really good elements of potential yeah. policies and, and legislation. And I, mm, it's mm-hmm. just, it's going to fall to the wayside because this is this is not their time. Yeah. So it'll be interesting yeah, over the next few months. Um, should we talk beer? beer? Yeah. Phil, yeah. so, what are you guys enjoying? Oh boy! Yeah. <laughs> so I'm having a I'm having a Brightside IPA, which is from Portland, uh, out of Portland, Maine. It's Lone Pine Brewing Company. I've had I, I forget what the other one. Portland, they have another IPA that I've had before that I that I liked. Um, this one I I really I'm enjoying this one. It's um, you know I have I've got so busy talking I haven't really thought that much about beer. <laughs> Um, you know, it's 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 fine. It's a it's you know it's it's an IPA, 
it's an American IPA, so it's not quite as like I don't know if that's actually the difference between an American IPA and a classic IPA, but my experience is the American ones tend to be a little less intense, a little less hoppy. It has that to it. Um, yeah, it's it's good. It doesn't like blow me away. It doesn't like leave me, you know, thinking that I, I I wouldn't turn down another one if someone gave it to me. But it doesn't stand out as like a Hall of Fame beer. Sure. Um, yeah, give it a try if you see it. It's 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 not bad. Uh, so I'm, I'm going with the Harpoon Rec League here on our via <laughs> Men's League. A keen ice starting up again soon. Uh, the Cool Down Companion, Happy Hazy Light. It's a, it, it's kind of like the it has that sort of citrusy ish range that's like very palatable to someone who doesn't know a lot about beer, which I'm kind of more in that range. Yeah. <laughs> so so yeah, it's pretty good. That's great. Nick, Nick, what are we enjoying? We had very exotic beer, uh, Fat Tire. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Fat Tire is just so good. It's yeah. just a good beer all the way around. Um, yeah, New Belgium makes really, really good stuff. Out I've, of Fort I've, Collins, Colorado. Mm-hmm. Yep. Yeah. It's, this it's this was good. one of the early, like, big craft breweries, right? Mm-hmm. They, they started this this momentum. And I, the part of the reason I grabbed this is because I thought it would be fun to go back and revisit one of these beers. I think it stands up. It does. It's, it really it's does. It's the amber. It's just a good beer. It's mm-hmm. an easy-drinking amber. Um, I'm not yeah. a fan of their new marketing, but otherwise it's great. Yeah, no, this was, that's a solid beer. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, if you guys want to check out the beers that we have on the podcast and our reviews, just download Untapped on iOS or Android. Um, look for Barstool Politics, and you will find all of that stuff that I just mentioned. All right, so a quick speed round, two topics. Yes. All right, so it all, on Sunday, President Trump became the first sitting U.S. president to set foot in North Korea as he met Kim Jong-un at the DMZ, and the two agreed to restart negotiations on a nuclear agreement. It started with a tweet Trump setting, uh, sent letting Kim Jong-un know he'd be in the neighborhood and he'd love to stop for a hello. I mean, that's literally what he tweeted. Hello. Uh, greeted by a beaming Mr. Kim, the president stepped across a low concrete border marker at 3.46 p.m. and walked 20 paces to the base of a building on the North Korean side for an unprecedented camera-friendly demonstration of friendship intended to revitalize the stall talks. Mr. Kim told Trump, quote, it is good to see you again, through an interpreter. I never expected to meet you in this place. Big moment, big moment, Trump responded. You can't make this stuff up, Nick. Uh, the question is what we should make of this impromptu North Korea impromptu North Korea visit. Some early speculation is that Trump may be shifting towards accepting a nuclear freeze with North Korea. In this scenario, the U.S. would accept North Korea as a nuclear power if the regime accepts certain, lim- certain limits on its program. Uh, this is something the Trump administration and all previous administrations have previously rejected. Phil, while, uh, while this meeting made for some high drama, which Trump loves, what's your sense of the developments and whether the tactic will produce any results? Uh, you know, I'm sort of torn on this. Um, I, I, you know, I, the, to the extent that, that discussions can move forward, I, I, I don't necessarily have a problem with that. Um, I, and I, as far as a nuclear freeze goes, I, that seems sort of inevitable at this point. I mean, the, once they have nuclear weapons, I can't imagine that they're giving them up unless we're actually willing to use force to make them give it up. Only one country in history has ever given up nuclear weapons, and it was basically it was South Africa, and it was basically because when they handed over power to black citizens, they didn't want them to have nuclear weapons. It was I mean, like, we don't give up nuclear right. weapons unless it's just all out racism. Um, so I, the, the, the North Korea, they're just not going to give it up. So it seems like working towards negotiating or stabilizing that situation seems like we may not like it, but it seems like that's the, the route to go. 
I, so in the, the the actual visit, the crossing, the walking, the stepping into North Korea, also, I don't necessarily in general have that big of a problem with. I don't know how much of a PR win this is for North Korea, for domestically especially for the, the Kim regime. I saw some reports of um, American press being essentially, there were, the, the new press secretary got roughed yeah. up basically because... Yeah. Um, the press was trying to follow the president into this area and North Korean security wasn't letting them. Those are the sorts of things that I feel like the Trump administration doesn't necessarily think through, right? So it seems like this is a good move and and it's without the, the recognition that the reason why we don't go to North Korea, the reason we don't do these sorts of meetings is because of this. And so that's the part of it that is, that I don't know, that I think I don't, that that's the downside of all of this. I don't, what do you, what do you guys think? Nick? I, I, this is this is one of the <clears throat> which again we've talked about many many times on this podcast. Um, in terms of North Korea in this particular situation, it's I think any discussion is better than no discussion, and I think we're at a point where, like Phil said, there's no way that they're going to give up nuclear weapons. Um, this was their bargaining chip for the better part of twenty years, uh, attempting to get to this point. Now that they're here we're starting to see some movement in a more diplomatic direction, regardless of what administration currently in power. Um, I, I think this is still a, a net positive. I'm going to keep saying that, and it will still be a net positive for as long as I can hold on to it. Um, no, I, I mean, the, yes, the optics of it are, are not great. Um, but, I, I mean, if we're talking about opening some sort of dialogue or the potential for some sort of dialogue with North Korea over people on social media and in the mainstream media losing their minds, calling this a propaganda win for North Korea. I, I don't I don't think it's that. I think this is a potential, again, very tiny stepping stone into bring them into the wider international community where regardless of if they have North or North nuclear weapons, this is going to temper their resolve to be, you know, a, a, a rogue state and and uh, a, um, a, a negative actor in, in a globalized world that you need to be connected with, especially from an economic perspective. Jake, what's your sense of all this as you as you watch? Yeah, I think in a post-Roger Ailes, post-2016 world, this is a win mm -hmm. for Trump. I mean, obviously, there are a lot of reasons you can list forever about how this was kind of jarring to see the, yeah. you know, impromptu meeting and, and all that. But, um, you know, I, again, this is something I hear from Trump supporters a lot. They're like, you know, he Obama could have never done this. Look, look what he's doing. He's, he's like bringing Kim to the table. You know, this is fantastic. <laughs> and um, I mean, it, it also just fits kind of what is becoming Trump's M.O., which is creating and escalating a crisis yep. that yeah. – is you know caused by him and then coming in to save his own crisis and this fits that model very yes. very well but if you start uh, the fire and then put out the fire you still put out the fire <laughs> so yeah i i think i think especially if you look at how this is playing on fox uh you know he's, he's killing it yeah he, so i saw what what it was uh Oh, Predict It was emailing stuff out today. I've, I've referenced Predict It a few times. Mm -hmm. um, uh, the, the Trump's re-election, uh, the market for Trump re-election went up like four cent, went up like ten percent today, based on basically coverage of. I think that's probably a combination of you had 
you know, Democrats have stuff to be excited about, but also you have this like cacophony of Democrats fighting with each other. And then you, you contrast that with Trump being, you know, diplomatic and presidential. Yeah. And I think that all it looks pretty good for him. Mm-hmm. What do you what do you think, Bill? I had two reactions to this. The one is the theater of him doing this, right? The the tweeting out to the public. That's he looks like a buffoon, right? And, and the <laughs> The crossing the border stuff, like that that's not good diplomacy, right? It's not trashing Obama that Obama couldn't have got this meeting. You know, you, you got to be more long-term thinking than that. So that really bothered me. But this idea of a nuclear freeze is the right choice. I mean, it's hard to say, and it's, it's probably going to be hard for Democrats to ex- accept this, but the reality is North Korea, as you said, Phil, is not giving up its nuclear weapons. So the best path forward is to get a reasonable solution where they talk about limiting tests, they talk about limiting uh, enrichment, all of those things. And then down the road, you talk about reducing and reducing. But I would be very happy with the nuclear freeze. I think the world is in a better place. So I think it works out okay. But how he goes about it just kills me. It's like he falls into these situations. (laughs) (laughs) I'm going to open a whole nother can of worms because we talked last week all about Iran. Yeah. Yeah. Right. I mean, it feels like a, the, the, I, I think you're right. But the, by that logic, again, it seems like uh, I don't know. There it, it feels like there's this partisan divide on Iran and North Korea. Yes, right. Yeah. In which in which Democrats are, I think, uh, I, I want us to engage with Iran and Republicans want us to bomb Iran. And, and you know, Republicans want us to engage with North Korea and Democrats think that yeah. what Trump's doing is terrible. And it feels like the truth is somewhere in the middle. Right. Which is that they're both not great regimes they're both human rights disasters um, but they're both also self-interested that probably you know we need to recognize that they are here to you know they're they're not going anywhere and except the world as it is right the world is that you know iran doesn't have nuclear weapons but north korea does and that's an important distinction between those two cases Right, but all of this is just totally creating the incentive for uh, Iran should totally get nuclear weapons, right? If, if now that North Korea does, yeah. we're going to engage them. We're going to assume they have it. We're going to treat them like a you know a stable. We're not going to put sanctions on them or go to war. It's, it's they have it. They're here to stay. Let's constructively engage with them. Like if I'm Iran, I think that's where we've got to get. Like we're going to push our chance. We're going to push the limits. We're going to take our chances until we get nuclear weapons, and then everyone will treat us like an equal player, and they'll have to. They'll all calm down and say, oh, they've got they've got nuclear weapons now we've got to treat them differently I, um i'm sorry phil go ahead no, that's, i just that, that's <clears throat> just the logic that kept coming into my head is that if i'm iran and i'm watching uh, yeah. this i think that's that's the path no. right I, I i thought the exact same thing and then i i i they're they're two very different different neighborhoods um i i think from a geopolitical perspective you have the specter of china and uh attempting to do any sort of either uh um military or economic intervention uh in terms of north korea in terms of iran um it's a much more nuanced complicated situation in terms of you have europe and you have israel and and just saudi arabia saudi yeah every every possible thing that could go wrong is pretty much centered around there so them having a nuclear weapon having nuclear weapons in general i think would be significantly more complicated than dealing with North Korea at this point. So I, I don't disagree that it's a different neighborhood and it's more nuanced and complicated and all of that. But part of me also thinks, well, then 
let's have, let them. I mean, this is I, this is just me thinking out the logic, right? Let them have nuclear weapons, right? They're gonna North Korea. The argument was had, would be that North Korea now they have nuclear weapons. They've started acting, you know, a little differently. They're, you know, we're we're saying you can treat them differently. They have nuclear weapons. Their incentives are different. Why not? Why not take that approach with Iran? Like this... if Iran has nuclear weapons, like why? Maybe they'll start acting like a nuclear power. <laughs> They'll they'll yeah. behave differently. They've got a you know Iran, sorry Israel has nu- nuclear weapons to to I don't know. I mean it seems like the 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 direction that people have gone with North Korea is that they now that they have nuclear weapons they've calmed down. They're a more normal partner in international relations. We can handle them differently. This is the John Mearsheimer, who's a, a professor at University of Chicago, IR professor, has made this argument that you should give Iran the bomb because it, it brings responsibility. And there is some truth that North Korea has been more responsible of late because they don't have to worry about a U.S. intervention because they know that the U.S. won't do that if you have a nuclear weapon. I worry about escalation in the region between Saudi Arabia. If Iran gets it, Saudi Arabia sure. gets it. Yeah. So that that's a bit more concerning to me. Um, but it is, it's all, it's I mean, all scary. You don't have a giant state actor that's also propping up your economy, N- not in the sense, not to the degree that China is propping up North Korea's economy at this point, whatever economy they have left. Yeah, um, yeah I, I, I'm not sure as much as uh, Russia claims to be, you know, their biggest benefactor, I, I, I don't think it's the same, I don't think it's the same scenario. So. Yeah, well, I, the one thing I would add, though, I think the, the the other thing with the Iran situation is that the hardliners are incentivized to just totally want to blow every oh, blow sure. up every <laughs> deal and impede any kind of progress in a way that that incentive structure isn't there with North Korea because you have hardliners in Israel, you have hardliners in Iran, and here and in Saudi Arabia, all of whom want no progress to be made on any kind of deal and want to you know essentially escalate things just enough to their own. And where the North Korea scenario is, uh, I don't want to say it's, you know, like more kind of one dimensional, but you got to see where I'm getting at, you know? Oh, it is. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, yeah, absolutely. I mean, that's the thing, you know, Kim Jong, somebody asked Trump, I know we need to move on, but he asked Trump what he thought about the fact that the negotiating team had changed, you know, because Kim Jong-un assassinated all of them. He's like, well, I'm sure they're, they're probably still around. They're on vacation. They're probably just not here. (laughs) (laughs) All right, let's move on. Our final topic. So President Trump used the G20 conference in his meeting with Kim Jong-un to elevate his daughter, Ivanka Trump, into the unofficial spokeswoman (laughs) and budding stateswoman for the Trump administration. Ivanka gave news interviews, posed for photos, attended the closed-door meeting between her father and Mr. Kim. While at the G20, uh, G20, Ivanka Trump also mingled with world leaders, offering her thoughts on the international system. In one video that was actually shared by the French government, you see Ivanka trying to get involved in a conversation between Justin Trudeau of Canada, Francis Emmanuel Macron, Theresa May of the United Kingdom, and the IMF chief, Christine Lagarde. It was pretty awkward, and Christine Lagarde (laughs) wanted nothing to do with Ivanka. Uh, Many former national security officials found this to be inappropriate. Michael McFaul, former ambassador to Russia under Obama, noted, quote, Ivanka Trump is not in the National Security Council. She's not an advisor on the issues being discussed. So her presence undermines the professional look of the Trump delegation, both to other countries and to national security professionals in the Trump administration. Uh, unquote. While Ivanka has played a prominent role in the administration, this was the first time she's taken such a leading role on issues of foreign policy. Phil, we've talked about uh, Trump's preferences for nepotism before. This appeared to me to be an intentional strategy of getting Ivanka out in front of the world. What's your read on this? 
Yeah, I mean, this is clearly intentional, right? I mean, they've, they've, they've done this a number of times where they float. It's never really, there's not much that's come of it, but they floated her name for, uh, you know, when they were talking about replacing UN secretary, uh, UN, um, sorry, the, the ambassador. They floated her name for that. They floated her name for some of the other ones. What was it like? A, it was like World Bank or something. Yes, that's like what that. it was. They yeah. floated her name. Um, and there's always backlash and people, you know, push back against it. But uh, I mean, I, there's there's something to the strategy where if every time you have some sort of big international thing, you throw Ivanka Trump and Ivanka Trump's name out there, eventually people start to associate her with it. But um, I mean, this is this is why nepotism is bad, right? <laughs> like. <laughs> People should end up in these positions because they are highly qualified. The, the, the sort of interactions that are going on amongst world leaders, I'm not saying that Ivanka Trump isn't smart or anything like that, but she's not qualified. I mean, there's all sorts of nuances and details that go into this. And um, you should have to you should have to go through all sorts of hearings to make sure you're qualified to be in these positions. You shouldn't just be there because of the president because you're the president's daughter. Um, yeah, I mean, it's going to throw it, you know, it's going to affect how the fact that the French government is tweet is the one that's tweeting this out is showing to some extent what our allies think now or uh, not it's even our France. allies, other people in there. <laughs> right. We may not. You might think, well, screw France. They're being jerks about it or whatever. But <laughs> regardless, um, if the people that we have to interact with are put off by this, that's going to cause a problem with our international relations. I, I don't know. Yeah, yeah I actually. uh I think another subtle French dig, if you look at the what has now become the main opposition party to Macron, which, which was known as the National Front and is now uh, this weird kind of like rebound, rebrand name with, you know, it's, I actually wrote an article, I can't believe I'm going to bring this up, but I wrote an article in college when I was convinced Trump was going to lose, but there was going to be a longstanding kind of legacy of his campaign and I was saying that Ivanka is going to run for president and she's going to be much more popular and I based that off of uh, Marie Le Pen yeah, yeah. being mm -hmm. a much more popular version than her father Jean-Marie Le Pen and now she has her niece Marion Maréchal Le Pen and then the other guy they're bringing in they sent to the EU so you know I mean I, I think it's actually not surprising that the French government was the one to release this mm -hmm. because nepotism is actually kind of a key sort of undergirding <laughs> uh, dynamic that they're dealing with now but the, the other thing i mean like uh, i'm not sure if, if you saw jared kushner's interview on that axios hbo show with jonathan swan mm -hmm. i mean you talk to white house reporters or just like you know kind of people who it's like i mean it is essentially a family business and they have enormous influence in the white house and there simply isn't anyone there to tell them they can't go there and you know uh I, I, I think these examples get kind of overused a lot, but like, again, imagine if Chelsea Clinton was mm. representing a Hillary Clinton administration at the G20 instead of all the other people they had. I mean, well, you know, I think back to when Bill Clinton was elected and he like tapped Hillary Clinton to be the, yeah. the, the, the go-to for his healthcare reform mm. stuff and like the massive meltdown that people had in this country. Yeah. Uh, it's, it's weird how far we've come from that. I mean, you know, JFK and, and Robert Kennedy, yeah. right? There were the nepotism laws that kind of came into place as a result of that as well. It's, it's, weird how far we just are to the extent mm. to which we just don't care wow. or to which our partisanship our partisan like affiliation determines how much we care I sure think. but uh, again it, it was a shitty piece of legislation that congress passed that allowed for the loophole that let this sort of thing happen you had to be what was it it had to be um 
being nominated for a a federal agency and the the or white like house is in a federal position or something right like right right, right. Yeah. so they're they they technically can be there so change the legislation i guess well we saw a former secretary of state rex tillerson came out this last week and took a shot at some of this nepotism saying that there were a number of instances where he was cut out of the loop you know where was he i can't remember where he was but he, he was walked... at a restaurant and jared could the the guy the, yes. like guy comes up to him, was like uh secretary tillerson i just thought i'd let you know that jared kushner's in the back with like the special envoy in mexico he's like what right. <laughs> right. you know and so tillerson commented that he oftentimes you know that there was the conversation he was having and he was being left out of meetings but jared was the key one meeting yeah. with you know whoever it was and it is crazy that's not well, how you run the national security council right there's clear lines of authority and you can't just cut the secretary of state and apparently uh mattis at defense was cut out of certain conversations as well, well. Bolton, this week while the north korea stuff was going on bolton was in <laughs> yes. mongolia they sent him to mongolia literally. <laughs> oh do you think they sent him to mongolia or if, or if bolton was so upset about the fact that we're gonna have a nuclear pause that he was just like i'm gonna go anywhere i hear good things about Mongolia. <laughs> I, I, re I related to that Ivanka Trump video. Have you all, have you all seen that? You yes. Know? Where yeah. she, like, they're all busy talking and chatting and laughing and she kind of wanders in. Like, that's been me at so many parties. <laughs> <laughs> the, the military side, too. Yeah. You can see Justin Trudeau's face. They just pants him briefly. He's like, oh, my God. Like, <laughs> No, there were a number of images that were just fantastic of, of Ivanka next to Trump and all the world leaders around. I mean, it is, oh, it was it was an intentional strategy, and yeah, it, I don't, I don't know, I don't think it's good. Hilariously awful. Yeah, yeah. Uh, well, this was great. It was great, Jake. Yeah. Thank you so much for for joining oh, us. We really it appreciate it. It was a lot of fun. You want yeah. to plug your podcast one more time? Please, yes. yes. So it's a uh, it's Pod Free or Die. We're on iTunes, Stitcher, Podbean. No Spotify yet, so hold, hold on to that one. But um, <laughs> we basically, you know, we have some presidential candidates, some uh, you know, kind of New Hampshire state house figures, and then honestly, some of the best are just kind of unsung local folks who have really interesting backstories. Um, so, you know, if you have suggestions for a guest, uh, let me know. I'm on Twitter at Jake LaHutt. And uh, it was, again, it was really fun to be on here. Beats, beats working for a living. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my God. Well, let's, let's do our stuff, too. Uh, if you guys like the podcast, questions, comments, uh, beer suggestions, uh, guests, anything like that, uh, want to see what we're doing, follow us on Twitter at Barstool Paul, P-O-L, Facebook at Barstool Politics. Uh, beers, uh, check out Untapped on iOS or Android. Look for Barstool Politics on there. Uh, the podcast, iTunes, uh, Spotify, Stitcher, SoundCloud, uh, Google Play Music. I'm sure I'm missing something else. Um, review us, share us, like us through there. Uh, and then we are partnered with uh, Predicted, which is a uh, real money political prediction market uh, where you can buy and sell shares in future political events. Barstool Politics listeners who use the uh, promo link when opening up a new account uh, will receive up to $20 match on their first deposit. Uh, so open up a $20 account. Predict it will match that $20. Uh, just use the promo link, predicted.org slash promo slash barstoolpaul20 uh, and check it out. Anything else, guys? That's great. Great. A lot of fun. Jake, thanks again. Talk Thank to you. you soon. Thank you. Cheers. Bye, guys. Cheers, guys.